Good morning. Good to see you here this morning. Glad to be here with you and glad to be in God's Word. As we begin today, if you have your Bibles, be turning to 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. And as you're turning there, uh, I can say that uh, today will be a, a day in which we look at a great chapter of Scripture. They're always great, but 1 Thessalonians 3 is a great chapter. We're going to cover the entirety of that chapter today. I think we can do that because we set up the groundwork for it in the previous sermons walking through the first two chapters of this letter. Much of what is in this chapter is a discussion of Timothy's mission, the mission that Paul sent Timothy on to go to Thessalonica to check on the church. Now, we've spoken about that every Sunday in this series so far, five Sundays. So it's going to cover that, but we've already covered it. And so we're going to be able to look at a lot of ground today, cover a lot of ground today. So if you have your Bibles, be turning to 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. And as you're getting there, for those who haven't been here for all the Sundays or who are trying to catch up on what's going on, let me help you. Paul was on the second missionary journey. He went into Macedonia by the, the plan and will of God. He enters into the cities there and finds initial success and then persecution. Uh, this happens everywhere he goes, but we're particularly looking at Thessalonica. And there he had tremendous success. Entered the synagogue and some Jews converted to Christianity. A number of the God-fearing Gentiles trusted the message that Paul was preaching, trusted the message of Christ, the gospel of Christ, entered the church, if you will, and even some of the leading women. And of course, this caused problems, as it always did. It was a double-edged sword on the one hand, great and glorious things happening in the name of Christ. And on the other hand, of course, seeing a number of the God-fearing Gentiles leaving the synagogue angered, uh, the Jewish leaders and made them jealous. In fact, Paul says they were, or excuse me, Luke says in Acts that they were aroused to jealousy. Now, we know that many of the Greek God-fearers were good funders, good supporters of the synagogues, and so I'm sure the Jewish leaders hated to see them go, but they also just hated to see the, su the success of Paul, that he was doing so well. And so what did they do? They went to the marketplace and stirred up the wicked uh, men of the marketplace, the Pornea, it stirred them up and they caused a riot and they went and seized Jason, an early convert, if you will. They drug him before the magistrates and most scholars believe as part of the agreement to release him, he had to agree or it had to be agreed that the troublemakers, the Pauls and the Silas and even Timothy had to leave town. And so that's what we uh, saw happen. And of course they continued to Berea and then Paul went on to Athens, but all the time Paul is curious or concerned about the church at Thessalonica. He figures they're under uh, duress, they're under persecution. Have they stood firm? Paul knows the church. He's been there from the beginning. He, he knows the people who'd entered in the time he was there, but Paul wasn't there long. Paul was there maybe three weeks, maybe four or five weeks, but not long. He had given them a, a, a little bit of a foundation in Christ, but he had not given them all that they needed, he believed, to stand in the day of testing. How were they doing? That's what Paul was concerned about. You can imagine the level of concern for Paul. These were like children to him. He, he makes these familial analogies in the text, doesn't he? He's like a nursing mother. He's like a, a caring father directing them 
They're like children to him that have been taken from him too soon. Paul is curious, have they stood? He's concerned for their welfare. He's concerned for the welfare of Christ's church. Now, he doesn't mean a building like we often talk about with churches today. Now, I think Paul is concerned about the visible presence of Christ in the community. In other words, in that sense of the church, but that's a group of individuals. And Paul is concerned about those individuals, isn't he? He's concerned about their welfare. Yes, their physical welfare. I'm sure Paul is concerned if they have uh, found or encountered uh, persecution and possibly even grave persecution. But Paul is more concerned about their spiritual welfare. You'll see that in today's text because Paul will tell them that they shouldn't be lured in. They shouldn't be flattered back into the synagogue. Well, if Paul's only concerned with physical safety, that's a viable strategy, isn't it? Deny Christ, return to the synagogue, you'll be safe. But Paul cares about their spiritual safety, their spiritual standing. Paul is concerned for that. And so Paul knows that they have to stand fast and have to stand firm on Christ. My friends, this is a newborn congregation. I say that every week, but it truly is. They've only been a congregation in Thessalonica for a few weeks. And so Paul is wondering, have they survived? Have they endured? If they're the elect of God, Paul is sincerely convinced they must stand firm. They must stand fast. And Paul thinks he saw evidence that they were the elect of God. He believed he saw true spiritual conversion. And he believes that they have been saved by the grace of God. But Paul also knows that their walk of faith and their endurance and perseverance through faith are the ultimate evidence if that profession of faith was real. So Paul wants to know, have they stood firm? Have they stood fast? What has happened to these beloved believers in Thessalonica? As Paul goes to Athens from Berea, he sees a window of opportunity to send Timothy back to Thessalonica. And soon after, Timothy returns with a report. It's a glowing report. They haven't just survived. They are thriving as a congregation. We've spoken about it every week. This is a congregation that is evangelizing, that is modeling Christian life. This is a congregation full of the Spirit, living out the Christian life as they are called to do. They are an exceptional church, even though they are an infant church. Paul is overjoyed by what he hears, and he writes this letter. Now, I want to read today's text. It's all of chapter 3. So read along with me if you've got your Bible handy, which I pray you do. Paul writes, Therefore, when we could no longer endure it, we thought it good to be left in Athens alone, and sent Timothy, our brother and minister of God, and our fellow laborer in the gospel of Christ to establish you and encourage you concerning your faith, that no one should be shaken by these afflictions, For you yourselves know that we were appointed to this. For in fact, we told you before when we were with you that we would suffer tribulation, just as it happened, and you know. For this reason, when I could no longer endure it, I 
sent to know your faith, lest by some means the tempter had tempted you, and our labor might be in vain. But now that Timothy has come to us from you and brought us good news of your faith and love, and that you always have good remembrance of us, greatly desiring to see us as we also to see you. Therefore, brethren, in all our affliction and distress, we were comforted concerning you by your faith. For now we live, if you stand fast in the Lord. For what thanks can we render to God for you? For all the joy with which we rejoice, for your sake before our God, night and day praying exceedingly, that we may see your face and perfect what is lacking in your faith. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus Christ direct our way to you, and may the Lord make you increase and abound in love to one another and to all, just as we do to you, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, with all his saints. The word of the Lord. Amen. As we look at this text today, I want us to look at three important points. First of all, Timothy assigned a mission. Timothy assigned a mission. Now you know what that mission is, but we want to talk about it. Second of all, Paul receives a report. We've been speaking about that week after week, but it's important we look at what Paul says about it here. And third, Paul offers a prayer. We just heard that prayer. It's a precious prayer, and we want to look at it as our third point today. Let's get started. So starting with the idea that Timothy was assigned a mission, we saw Paul was explaining last Sunday that his absence should not be misread. It should not be misread as demonstrating a lack of care for the church at Thessalonica. He argued that the separation was not his choice, but was forced upon him. Whatever physical separation there was, it was not a separation from heart. In other words, while I might have been at distance from you physically, I was not emotionally. I was with you emotionally in those trenches. I cared for you. I was praying for you, longing to see you again, longing that I might be with you again. That Paul desired reunion and had tried over and over to come back to Thessalonica, but he had been hindered. At every turn, Paul had been hindered, and Paul says, we were hindered by Satan. There's no question who was behind the hindrance of of the attack or of the disruption. It was Satan who was hindering them. But finally, Paul wanted them to know last Sunday, and it's important to recognize this, that they should not think he did not want to return because Paul wanted return. Why? Because he cared for them. But even more than that, Paul saw them in an important way. He considered the Thessalonian church and believers a crowning work that he desired to present to King Jesus at his return. Brothers and sisters, I want you to think about that. Paul saw this church as special and important. He wanted to see a thriving church, a a blessed church, a church that is growing, a church that is spiritual, a true church of the Lord Jesus Christ. That when Christ returned in his parousia, that 
that Paul could present that church to Christ, that work as a work of, of honor and glory to his master. So that's Paul's true motive. He isn't trying to profit from them, as the, the liar said. He's not trying to use the Thessalonians. He simply wants to offer them up in thanksgiving to Christ. It's not about Paul's glory or Paul's pockets. It's about the Lord Jesus Christ and his glory. So my friends, all of those facts lead into what we're looking at today. We know that because Paul begins with the word therefore. And as anybody in a Bible study knows that whenever you see the word therefore, you go back and see what it's there for, right? And so it tags along or it, it sums up what's been said before based on all that was said just now in chapter 2. Therefore, what? Well, Paul wants them to know something very important about how this mission that Timothy has been sent on came about. Therefore, based on everything that Paul said, on his desire to see them, on the hindrances that stood in the way, based on all that, Paul says, therefore, when we could no longer endure it, we thought it good to be left in Athens and sent Timothy, our brother and minister of God and fellow laborer in the gospel of Christ, to establish you and encourage you concerning your faith. Now, now think about that for a moment. When we, Paul says, now there's some debate about this. Some people do, do not believe this is Paul and Silas, but maybe Paul and some general idea of the church. I think it makes much more sense to say Paul and Silas who started this missionary journey together were the ones that sent Timothy. But when they could no longer endure it. Now, this word is stego. It means, uh, it's, a, it's actually a reference to water, to, to try to hold water back or hold water in. The idea is finally it burst through when they could no longer endure it, no longer hold it back. When they had taken as much as they could, they sent Timothy. In other words, what Paul is trying to say is, they could no longer restrain themselves from finding a way to get somebody back. If you've believed the lies that Paul didn't care about getting back to Thessalonica or getting a word from Thessalonica, Paul says, we got to the point where we couldn't endure it any longer. And we sent Timothy back. My friends, even the wording of the rest of that sentence is noteworthy. Having gotten to this point, Paul and Silas thought it was good to be left in Athens alone. Now that word there, kataleipo, uh, it, it means to be abandoned. It's often a reference to in death, leaving behind loved ones. The idea here is that Paul was so desperate. Paul was so grieved to know more about the church in Thessalonica. He was, uh, had endured as much as he could that he sent Timothy. I think the idea here is to tell you how precious Timothy was to Paul. That he knew in sending Timothy, he put Timothy at risk. That he was giving Timothy up and he may not receive him back. That it was a risky mission. So any argument that Paul did not care about the Thessalonians is undercut strongly there, isn't it? Paul sent his most precious co-worker, his son in the faith, if you will. He sent Timothy on a dangerous mission to get a report on the church in Thessalonica. Again, this is not just anybody. This is Timothy. Well, what does Paul say about Timothy? Well, I don't even have to go to other of Paul's letters, other letters of Paul. We can look right here at what he says about him in this chapter. 
he says that, that Timothy is our brother. Now, Paul has been writing familial terms throughout this. We've, we just mentioned this. He referred to himself as like a mother in relationship to the Thessalonian congregation, like a father in relationship to them, like they are his precious children. And now he says of Timothy, he is my brother. Now, we know this is a very common, a very commonly used phrasing in the church, even in those days, that in Christ we are brothers and sisters. And so he says, Timothy is my brother in Christ. He is a part of the true family of God. There is no question about the faith of Timothy. Second, Paul calls him a minister of God. Now, the word he uses here is diakonos, and we know that word because it's the word from which we derive deacon. It means servant. That's what it means. Now, certainly Paul does not mean the the ordained term or the office term of deacon. Here he just simply means he is a true servant of the living Christ. Timothy is one who is pouring his life out in service to the king. That's what Timothy is doing. Timothy is a a minister, isn't he? Timothy is, is to be an elder, if you will, but in this sense, he is a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so Paul calls him that. Third, Paul calls him a fellow laborer in the gospel of Christ. He is a co-worker in the mission of Christ's church. We see that in every place we see Timothy, a faithful and hardworking member of the body of Christ, a co-laborer in the gospel. Now, before we move on to what Timothy's mission is, I want us to think about something, because in this text we see an interesting thing worded. At the beginning of this letter, uh, Paul refers to the gospel as the gospel of God. He also refers to it that way in Romans, for instance. But here, notice in this chapter, he says the gospel of Christ. It's interesting because, again, you see here the activity of the triune God. This is the work, the salvific work of the triune God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And again, we see that noted right there in the text as he speaks of Timothy being a faithful co-laborer in the gospel of Jesus Christ. We know something now of the, the worker or the person sent on the mission, Timothy, but what was the goal of Timothy's mission? Well, we've spoken about it a little bit. First of all, we know it was to get an update on the church. Paul is desperate to get a report on this church. He wants to know how it's doing. Has it survived? Has it endured? Has the faith of these believers been proven genuine? Because, by the way, Paul is not undercutting the perseverance of the saints. Paul's saying if they are saints, they will persevere. If they do not persevere, they are not the elect of God. And so as as Paul is sending, he wants to know, he wants confirmation that his work was not in vain. He says that. He, did not, he wants to know that he did not labor in vain, that he did not pour all this love and, and concern into those who were not truly believers. So we know that's one part of the mission that Paul has sent Timothy on. But there's more, isn't there? Second of all, Paul says that he is there to establish the Thessalonians. Now that is the word sterizo. It's it's a word that means to strengthen in in order that they might stand. In other words, they are in a difficult situation. Paul knows that. They are being tossed and turned by persecution. Paul wants to send Timothy that he might strengthen them in the day of challenge. 
He might give them a, a firmer foundation that they might endure the winds and tempest of persecution. My friends, that's an important thing to think about here. It also is an important reminder that if their faith is genuine, it's not just about their conversion, is it? Paul is wanting to shore them up that they might continue to work and grow in Christ. That's the sanctification that is, uh, Paul often refers to as so important in our walk with Christ. Third, Timothy is on a mission to encourage them. Parakaleo, this is a word we've looked at before, a word that means to call alongside. Timothy is sent to encourage them. If they are slowing down, he is to run past them and call them to keep up with him. He is to, to help them, to steady them, to encourage them, to move them forward. And all of this toward one goal, that none of the Thessalonian believers should be shaken by affliction. Now, we know practically what that would mean, don't we? We think of shaken, like I said a moment ago, like uh, the wind would blow uh, reeds uh, back and forth, to and fro, and so we might think it's what Paul means here, and some do. But that word sino is literally uh, the Greek word for a dog wagging its tail. Now, many people then see a connection as a tail wags back and forth. It's like being blown to and fro, and so what Paul is talking about here is Don't be blown to and fro. Don't be shaken. But it's interesting because in the ancient uses, it was usually meant to say, uh, meant to be used for flattering someone. You know, a dog wags its tail when it's happy. So the idea was when a person was exhibiting this, they were being flattered. Now, I believe that is what Paul means here. It goes along better with his apologia that we looked at. In that sermon, I mentioned that Paul was making a defense, didn't I? Paul was making a defense of his mission, of his character. Paul was saying, don't believe those who are attacking me, who are saying that I have ulterior motives. Again, Paul is saying, don't be sucked in by the flatterers and those that are flattering you. Who would that be? Imagine the synagogue leaders that want to woo back those who have left. They wanted to get rid of Paul because he was taking some of their funders probably Paul was a problem so they got rid of Paul but now they want to woo them back and so on the one hand there is the stick of persecution driving them or at least tempting them to return to the synagogue they come to the synagogue they come back all the problems will end on the other hand there is the the carrot isn't there the synagogue leader saying oh don't don't mind what Paul said he's just a troublemaker come back into the synagogue If you want to see a New Testament parallel to this, think of Hebrews, where there is a danger that under persecution, Christians would revert back to Judaism. Now, they could justify this by saying, well, you know, the truth is we're still worshiping God, the same God. But my friends, as the author of Hebrews is trying to warn them, there is a danger in having the revelation of who Christ is and then rejecting it. Rejecting him, you could even say, right? Rejecting Christ to go back to what's safe. As I said earlier, if Paul's only concern is for their physical well-being, he would say, do that. Go back to the synagogue. You'll be safe. But Paul knows the spiritual devastation that would represent. And so Paul does not want them to be shaken, not to be flattered back uh, through temptation. So my friends, we need to see all these things as what Paul is dealing with, what Timothy's mission is. But in the end, Paul says that his real concern is that the tempter would woo them away. 
Now, Paul means Satan, doesn't he? That Satan would woo them out of the church and into something else, maybe the synagogue or maybe the pagan temples there in Thessalonica. But again, I think when you look at the context of the letter, you see that the tool, if you will, of Satan's work here is the Jewish leaders. They're the ones that are doing or advancing Satan's agenda in this particular case. Satan will use whatever tools he can find at his disposal. In this case, it's the Jewish leaders who are opposing the gospel, opposing Paul, trying to cause problems. They are the ones that are tempting the Thessalonian believers. Come back to the synagogue and all will be well. So my friends, Paul is concerned that they might fall for the temptation, that they might be tempted back, they might be uh, flattered back into the synagogue. My friends, that they might be wooed away from Christ. Now again, I want to make clear that Paul is not saying that is possible for a true saint. I think Paul keeps talking about that he's concerned about the genuineness of the work that he did, that it would not be in vain because he would recognize that if that happened, it would show that they were never truly the elect of God. They were never truly converts to Christianity. They had never truly believed in their heart. So Paul is concerned about this. And so he waits for Timothy's return. I've spoken about this a number of times through this. Can you imagine the wait? No emails, no text messages. Paul just has to wait, and finally, he awaits Timothy's return to see if his work has been in vain. So imagine his joy as Paul receives the report. That's our second point. Paul receives the report. You don't have to guess about his joy. Paul says in verse 6 that Timothy carried the good news. Now, he refers to this report of Timothy as the gospel. He calls it the euagilizo. This is the, the word for gospel. This is the only time that Paul uses any form of the gospel as to be a message other than the direct gospel or gospel message of Jesus Christ. Now think about that for a minute. The euagilizo, the, the good news. And I think that tells you what Paul thought about this report. Yes, it was a part of the story of God's work. It's a part of the gospel story, but it also, as if it's a blessed word from heaven. I've said several times that Paul received this report and almost immediately sat down to write this letter. Now, we base this on the wording that Paul uses here. He uses the word RT, which does not simply mean now in a larger temporal sense, but is at this present moment. In other words, he's telling them he literally just heard this good news. Paul heard the report of Timothy and immediately sat down to write a response. That's how excited about it Paul was. How excited he was. Now what was the good news that he heard? Well, first of all, that they are a people of faith and love. Now we already spoke about that a few weeks back. These are central traits to believers. People of faith and love. There are people who trust in Christ, who love Christ, who love one another. Secondly, they are a people who remember Paul fondly and greatly desire to see the missionary team once more. Now, I cannot tell you how much that would have meant to Paul. Paul, I just feel, was concerned that they had bought the lie. 
that they counted him as a, a huckster or a charlatan and that they didn't want to see him again, but to hear that they had believed in him and trusted in him and were desiring that he might return, that they might see him again. Oh, my friends, that brought joy to Paul's heart. I, I just believe that. Now, we can tell from this letter that he was greatly concerned about that. So you can imagine then the joy as Paul hears that they are longing to see him as he has longed to see them. Notice it's interesting to me that Paul turns the tables on them. He says that this is a comfort to the missionary team in their own affliction. So in other words, the whole idea has been that the Thessalonians were facing persecution and affliction and that Paul needed to comfort them. But Paul says what you have done in this answer, in this response, in this report is give me such joy that you've comforted me in my afflictions. And my friends, Paul had had many afflictions. Not only the being run out of city after city after city, not, after, not only after going to Athens and, and going to the Areopagus and not having the, the success that he'd hoped he would have, and having to go to Corinth and all the difficulties Paul faced. He says, this good news has put wind under my wings. You know, there's sometimes you just feel that way, isn't there? I mean, it's true for us in the ministry, but it's true for all of us, isn't it? That there are times that we just get that piece of good news that just takes the weights off our shoulder. That just sets us free, if you will. We just feel like we've got the wind filling our sails. We're pushed and motivated to just go on and work harder. That's what this was for Paul. Paul so deeply concerned for these children in the faith, this church that he cared so much about, to hear that they longed to see him just put wind in his sails. It encouraged him and comforted him in his own afflictions. How can Paul offer thanks for news such as this, such good news? Well, that's what Paul asks, isn't it? He asked that very question. How are we to give thanks? For what thanks can we render, Paul says in verse 9, to God for you? How can we even thank God for such good news? For all the joy with which we rejoice for your sake before our God, night and day, praying exceedingly, that we may see your face and perfect what is lacking in your faith. How can we thank God enough for such good news? I pray you have moments like that. I know there are many times in our lives where we go through valleys and trials and temptations and difficulties, and I pray that we're thanking God for His steadfast support and help in those moments. But my friends, I pray you have those mountaintop moments too, where you have news so good that it's like the Apostle Paul has here, and he says, how can I offer thanks to God enough for what He has done? For what thanks could I render that is worthy of all the joy with which we rejoice in for your sake before our God? What joy that is when you realize that God has been so exceedingly good in his kind dealings with us that there is no way that we can give an appropriate thanksgiving. Now, this doesn't mean we don't try we just recognize that our ability to offer thanks is far exceeded by God's glory and goodness. And that is true all the time, all the time, whether we recognize it or not.
So what does Paul do here? He knows how to offer thanksgiving. It's by offering up to God. Now maybe he lacks the the words to express it. That's his point here. He may lack the words to express it, but he never forgets to whom he is to offer the thanksgiving. It is to God and to God alone. My friends, we rejoice to know that we have a God who is always worthy of our thanksgiving and praise. We come to our third point this morning that Paul offers a prayer, and that's exactly what he does. We don't have to uh, overanalyze this. I think it's just a beautiful prayer that we should, should think about, and maybe we pray a version of this prayer uh, this week as we think about it. But look at what he says. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus Christ direct our way to you. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love to one another and to all, just as we do to you, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. Amen. If we think about this prayer just for a moment, again, there's some things that we would notice here. First of all, it's a prayer speaking of God our God and Father, and also our Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul often speaks of the sanctifying work, the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit. Paul is making the point again here that this is a mission of the triune glorious God. We see it again here. Paul does this over and over again. But look at what his prayer is. Not only that we might return to you, but that the Lord might make you increase and abound in love to one another and to all. Have you thought about the fact that the love in your heart is also a work of God? We wouldn't forget what Paul says in Romans, that the love of God is poured out into our hearts by the Holy Spirit who is given to us, right? The love of God is poured out into our hearts, shed abroad in our hearts. This is a work of God to increase our love toward each other, toward Him, Paul says, I pray that very thing for you, that you would increase and abound in love. But then look at what Paul says. I pray that he would establish your hearts blameless in holiness at the parousia, the coming, the the appearance of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, my friends, this is not only about the justifying work of God at the moment that we place our faith in Christ and are born again. It's not simply about the sanctifying work of the Spirit that goes on in our walk with Christ as we uh, battle sin and mortify sin and grow in holiness and grow in faith and grow in our walk with Christ, but this is also talking about that our hearts would be established blameless, not only in that justifying work where we are accounted righteous in Christ, but there is a picture here even of the return of Christ and the ultimate glorification of believers. My friends, what a glorious day that is. So Paul offers this prayer. What a beautiful and complete prayer it is. We're praying that we would return to you, that God would allow us and direct us back to you. We pray that he will make you to increase and abound in love to one another and to all, just as we do towards you. We hope that he would establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, with all of his saints. My friends, I pray that you're praying a similar prayer for each other. We need to support each other's walks in Christ. I want to close by 
looking back to verse 10. Because I think there's something here that we, we shouldn't overlook that goes along with what we just read. When Paul talks about rejoicing in verse 9, he says, Night and day, praying exceedingly, that we may see your face and perfect what is lacking in your faith. Now, I want you to think for just a moment. Paul is praying again, uh, just as, or hoping, just as he had prayed a moment ago, that he might return to Thessalonica and see these believers face to face. But it's not just about seeing them face to face. He wants to see his beloved church family, if you will, in Thessalonica face to face, but it's not just about seeing them face to face. Paul also desires to do something else. The work that Christ has given him as an apostle, he wants to come back and he wants to perfect that which is lacking in their faith. Now, it's easy to pass over that, isn't it? As just a Pauline expression, just something Paul would say without thinking about what he's saying. Paul is speaking to a church that any of us, I believe, would be proud to call ourselves members of. A young church, a few months old, that is reaching its city and reaching its region and reaching even beyond its region. Into Achaia, the neighboring region. It's a church that has been noted to be a model church for others to follow. A church that loves one another and loves the Lord Jesus Christ. A church that is so active, Paul says, you are literally leaving nothing for us to do. No work for us to do in the region. This is a successful church. And yet Paul says to this church, I want to come back to you. And I want to perfect or make complete that which is still lacking in your faith. Paul is saying, as far as you have come in a short time, you are not there yet. There is more growth, more battling sin, more sanctifying, more perfecting the faith that you still need to do. My friends, is this the message we're seeing in the modern church? A challenge that even some of the most exemplary churches need to continue to grow, not in numbers, but in their faith? My friends, again, this goes back to what Paul is saying. He desires to pre present this church as, if you will, a crown, a Stephanos to the Lord Jesus Christ at his return. Where is our desire? Where are any of our church's desires today to say when Christ returns that we as a church want to stand as a crown, if you will, that might be tossed at the feet of Jesus Christ. Paul's talking about a city. He's not talking about the worldwide church when he speaks about the Thessalonian church. He's speaking about a church in a city. Now, it's a house church, and it's got members throughout that city, if you will. But we are also a part of the body of Christ. One church here in North Johnson City. Where is our concern? Brothers and sisters, I pray that the Lord would impress on our hearts that we would desire to realize that salvation is not the finish line. Justification is not the finish line. That's the starting point. We are made new in Christ, and we are called to be sanctified by the power of the Spirit. And my friends, we need to recognize that no matter how far we've come, we are still lacking Paul could look at that amazing church in Thessalonica and recognize that they were still lacking in the faith and they needed to be made complete and that Paul could help them in that. 
Have you thought about where you're lacking or where we're lacking as a body? Have you thought about how we could be made more complete? My friends, we need to. Because if the church at Thessalonica needed to step up their game, my friends, I can promise you we need to as well. Where's a generation of people who say, when I stand before Christ, I would pray that our church would be a crown, a Stephanos, that could be cast at our master's feet as a presentation, not unto our glory, but unto his glory and for his glory. And although it will not be a perfect church and it will not be a a perfectly glorified, it won't be a glorified church in the sense of our earthly walk. But were we a church that moved forward day by day by the power of the Spirit, battling sin, trusting in Christ, recognizing that it is only by His grace that we can be justified, and even by His grace that we are sanctified. It's only by the power of His Spirit that makes it possible. But where is the desire to recognize the greatness and glory of our King and desire as much as we can to move forward in our sanctification and as much as is possible perfect that which is lacking in our faith that we might one day be cast as a church at His feet to His glory forever and ever. Amen.